Lowdown with Low Tide on Sports 1440 for Wolf GMC Buick. Check them out at wolfgmcbuick.com. They're doing a X online vote for greatest Canadian song of all time. And if it weren't for Neil Young's Powderfinger, that song by the Guess Who, No Time, might be it. And of course, we play that because the Guess Who and Randy Backman and Neil Young and a lot of other great artists have all flung themselves into Winnipeg's music scene at one time or another. We're joined now by our friend Murata Tesh, who I think is probably more weaker than's era, but he's a bright guy who loves music. What kind of music are you listening to right now, Murata Tesh, from The Athletic? You know what? I appreciate the Winnipeg lead-in and the Weaker Thans by all means. One of the, the great storytelling bands of, of a good Winnipeg culture. Um, other than that, I've got what I call my sad dad rock, like the National <laughs> and uh, and music like that. Um, and the other day I heard a four-year-old play an old Fred Penner tune, which really moved me. So I'm into that too. Love it. I spent uh, probably five years of my life listening to Fred Penner sing What a Day. And I, I, I would, I, I would sing "What a Day," but not the way Fred said it. Mine was more frustration with my children not getting off of that damn record that they loved so much. But uh, <laughs> Fred yeah, it takes some getting used to. Yeah, really. Fred Penner was very entertaining, though. They, we saw him three or four times when the kids were young, and uh, outstanding artists. Okay, so speaking of outstanding artists, uh, one of the things I love about Winnipeg is that it does seem to be the kind of city where. Everybody rallies around to try to make it better. And I'm talking about Mark Chipman, who um, True North has the team. They worked at saving the other team. His, his, um, his work on keeping the Jets in Winnipeg and then bringing them back has been exemplary. And the article from Chris Johnson at The Athletic has him making phone calls to those who allowed their season tickets to lapse. I like the story because it's, it is sort of a, you know, a, a, a Canadian story where the owner gets on the horn with people in the community. But it also does kind of drive home the point that Winnipeg is a, not a massive market. Those tickets are expensive and the pull in terms of economy out of the market is real. And sometimes people are going to let those things lapse. Yeah, all of those are real concerns. And I think there's like a community spirit in Winnipeg where you sort of need to lift everybody up. If there's a good musician, you go to their shows. If there's, you know, a good filmmaker, you go see what they've been working on. In the business community, it's no different. And I think Edmonton fans would relate to that. It's a real community-driven place. Um, It also means, though, when you're the Winnipeg Jets, you have the second smallest arena in the league. The smallest one is a college rink. Um, you have the third lowest capacity sales so far this year at 87% of the building that they're filling at home games. And the economic realities that are hitting everybody are a little bit more pronounced, I think, in Winnipeg, where fewer corporate seats get bought. It's always been about groups of people buying um, group ticket memberships. And the metro area is almost as small as it gets in the NHL, if not the smallest as well. So when life gets tough and things, these challenges form, it really is about the real people and not always the businesses and bigwigs that have real-life decisions to make about buying tickets or not. And Winnipeg has been in a little bit of a lull for the last couple of seasons. And it's ironic in that, um, <clears throat> how do I put this, I... I I think that, that a year ago, like in the off season, I, I had, and I shouldn't have because it's not nice to feel sorry for 
you know, teams or people. But I did feel kind of sorry because it looked like, you know, PLD was going to lo- leave uh, Connor Hallebach. You didn't know about the rest of the roster where they were going to have to, you know, re- reload. And, it, I mean, they came out of that. I think brilliantly the trade PLD trade turned out well. They signed Hollabach. They got, you know, everybody back. And this team looks as good as any right now. Maybe they're not talked about as much as the Oilers, but you know, they they're they're really good. They could win the Stanley Cup and yet there's a drag there. And and I I hope it doesn't become a big story, although it already is, because I I think that the the goal of the organization was to win a Stanley Cup, and they might be close, and I don't want people to forget about that. Yeah, it's as close as perhaps at any time in in Jets history, which is, you know, no disservice intended to the Dale Howarchuk era, but we remember how good Edmonton and, and Calgary to a lesser degree were at that time. That's a very real consideration. Winnipeg more recently in 2018, they go to the Western Conference Final, they haven't been back that that far since, but this team is tracking point for point, game for game, closely with that 2018 team, and that's that is getting a little bit lost. One of the reasons, though, I think, is just like you said about heading into last summer. That off season was a bit of it was known for a couple of years as an upcoming inflection point for the Jets. They could have lost Mark Shifley. They could have been forced to trade. Connor Hallebuck. They could have done worse than they did with that Pierre-Luc Dubois trade, and certainly they did buy out their former captain and Blake Wheeler. That was um, a bit of a crisis moment that they've navigated well through. In the seasons before that, though, they also had some turmoil. Paul Maurice steps down before that Dustin Bufflin had left. There was some middling results. At one point, Paul Stastny is saying the team isn't playing for each other. And one of the, and the reason I bring this up is because Whenever you'd hear, you know, Kevin Shevoldayoff or whomever speak to the issues around the team, they would try to sort of paint that as, as normal. And how, we, of course, every, every frustrated team outside of the playoffs right now is having tough conversations. Meanwhile, they seemed, the players seemed to be saying nobody was pulling on the same rope and they needed major changes. I think one of the factors, it's, and it's not the primary economic driver, but one of the factors that impacts ticket sales is the storyline that fans get to buy into. And for a little minute there, it was a zigzag of a storyline. They weren't on the rise. They weren't on the decline. And whenever the Jets took the opportunity to speak, they didn't seem to be acknowledging the very real issues that they had in front of them. So now they're winning. They're doing well. Shovel Day Off's moves have been excellent. I think there's going to be just a little bit of a lag between this quality and the building filling back up. Yeah. Uh, you know they should have started Essence in Game 7 and 90, right? <laughs> I mean, against Bill Ranford, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, how's my son Logan Stanley doing? He's gotten into some games since we spoke last. And, you know, I was talking to him because he's a lightning rod around here. You know, the Jets traded up to to pick him. Um, they traded up in the first round to pick him. They protected him over other players. He's an investment for them. And... Some fans love him at six foot seven. They see a guy that moves as well as he does, and they say, "Okay, well, this is a bit of a unicorn of a player. He moves that well. He's that big. Um, this is a top four stalwart of the future." Others just see the opportunity costs paid for him, or the the cost of acquisition, and all of that. He tells me, "I got off Twitter a long time ago, and so we got to have a real honest conversation about what's going on in his world." 
He was rusty in the first of three games he played about a week ago. He admits that. He felt like the game was awfully quick. But he's been getting better and better and looks like he'll be a solid piece if the Jets need to go to him in the playoffs, you know, as as teams do. Defense is often worn down by attrition. He looks like a guy who can step in and, and not burn them and, and actually offer a little bit of pop. I can tell you, I, 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 I know for a fact, I didn't know on draft day, but I know for a fact in talking to people afterward, if they hadn't taken Logan Stanley, he would not have gotten to the orders at 32. And I know if the orders, just because of the way they draft, they would have loved Logan Stanley. They, there's no way that guy gets out of the first round. So, I mean, I don't know if that helps Jets fans, but uh, he was <laughs> he was a wildly popular player on draft day that year. There's no doubt about it. There's risks that you sort of understand why teams would take. Like mm-hmm. sometimes there'll be a small player who puts up a ton of points and you're thinking, well, if they do make it, it's going to be a big hit. Like if it does work out, there's a chance that this player is, uh, I don't, Martin St. Louis just came to my mind as, a, as an example. Um, whereas Logan Stanley, okay. You know, he might not have had the offensive numbers in junior that you look for from a defenseman that'll play in the top four someday. But with his physical package, if he, if he hits, if he becomes a regular in the top four and he figures out the rest of those sorts of things, I can understand a lot of teams going, well, hey, that version of this player could be exceptional. I understand the reach. Uh, you, I love reading your stuff because you, you use logic and reason, and, and I don't have either of that, and so I really like it when I see it in print elsewhere. But you've talked a lot about Dylan DeMello. I remember you talking about him when he was just kind of emerging as a player, uh, and and over time he's definitely you know, become more of, you know, more important to this team. But looking at him this year and looking at the Jets defense and how well they played and, and what's going right for them, you know, he's got a 65% goal share at five on five and Morrissey's at at 64%. Uh, Sandberg is 68%. Is, is this just a matter of team defense or, or, you know, is a guy like Morrissey just driving driving the results so much that he's lifting up all boats. You know, I would have to say a little bit of, of all of those things. If if I could build the pie chart, there'd be a piece for, for everything you just said. Josh Morrissey, he isn't on pace to hit the 76 points that he did a year ago. But he is still an exceptional play driver, and he's jumping into the play, and he's creating opportunities and defending well. Um, more offensive excellence than defensive, but still he's a good defender. Dylan DeMello has been... Uh, has had the best chemistry, I think, with Morrissey that we've seen in Winnipeg since Morrissey was playing with Jacob Truba as a relatively young player or even Dustin Bufflin before that. It seems like DeMello knows exactly how to make the quick, clean retrieval turn and make that five-foot pass that puts Morrissey in stride or breaks the puck up ice. One of those little things, guys. People talk about shot blocks as the little things or, or big hits at timely moments, but Dylan DeMello's little things that add up are those short passes that just get Winnipeg moving north. And I think that adds up to good chemistry with Morrissey, who's probably driving the pairing, let's be honest. But also, his results are always going to be good because he helps the team get out of its own cleanly. I don't know whether I like Morrissey solo or with the Smiths, but either way, on the Winnipeg Jets, he plays very, very well. What about the deadline? What are we looking at for the Jets, uh, Murat, at the deadline uh, that you're hearing about or you think that they should do? Well, I think Winnipeg really wanted to upgrade at, at center, and they got that done with Sean Monahan. It was a frenetic week here in Winnipeg because I think the Jets were one of the many teams interested in Elias Lindholm out in Calgary before he was traded. 
They pivoted. They got Sean Monaghan. It appears to make Winnipeg's forward group a deep 12. Every line has a purpose and a role. And that would seem to mean that Winnipeg just needs a little bit of help on defense. Maybe the, a 6, 7, 8 type of guy like Ilya Libushkin out of Anaheim, a little bit of grit. Um, but I actually, I look down at, at Chris Tanev in Calgary and just the way that he plays in a top four role, defense first. And I think that would be a heck of an upgrade for the Jets. Uh, it, it might lighten the load from Neil Pionk, who struggled a little bit on that second pair uh, of late, though he's still a quality player. That's a nice lane. The other thing is, since since Winnipeg got all of its ducks in a row and everybody's healthy and Monaghan's in, their lines are still looking for chemistry. And if they if they could add a forward that just fits well, um, there there's a chance that they're not done on that front either. I see that the NHL general managers are finally on to my plan, which is to try to get every guy that the Winnipeg Jets put on waivers, pick him up because they've got a great talent pool. I think the latest was Declan Chisholm. But, it, it you know, that uh, I read the other day somebody saying that Sheveldayoff's got to go. And I'm like, why? Because even though there, there are mistakes that are made, I think the Jets are doing exactly what you have to do in Winnipeg, which is procure, draft, and develop players and don't be afraid to take risk, but also make sure it's worth it. They've done a hell of a job, I think. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, he's on a hot streak. If, G- if we can give GMs credits for, for hot streaks and cold streaks and that, I mean, since roughly 2022, he trades Andrew Kopp, and Andrew Kopp's a pending free agent at that time. He's not going to re-sign in Winnipeg to New York for a package that ends up getting Brad Lambert, Morgan Lair- Barron, who's a, a consistent player uh, on the Jets right now, a draft pick which becomes one of their top prospects, Elias Salmonson. Uh, there's an incredible package that comes back for that trade. You take it through the Pierre-Luc Dubois trade you mentioned, acquiring Niederreiter and Nemestikov last year at this time. They were great fits. Monaghan looks like a good fit. He's doing a lot of things well. And if you look at you know a top 20 Jets prospects list that I would have written three or four years ago, you would see Logan Stanley on it, and you'd be happy about that. You'd also see Declan Chisholm, who's playing for Minnesota. He scored his first NHL goal recently. Jonathan Kovacevic, who's playing in Montreal, uh, has good metrics on their third pair. Ville Hainala, who's still bubbling under in Winnipeg. They don't hit every single time, and I think that's a natural process with these prospects. I think some of it uh, ends up dying on the vine a little bit. But if you're looking at how well the Winnipeg Jets are doing and you're asking, well, how did they get to this? Kevin Shoveldayoff's a big, big part of that. Yeah, and he does not trade too many. He has traded some, but not too many. Murat, thank you. Appreciate it very much. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. Murat Atesh from The Athletic in Winnipeg. Read him. He's really good. Very creative guy. Thinking outside the box, paradigm shifts, gets into great conversations with uh, people in Winnipeg uh, Jets coaching and management. Um, brilliant guy, he really is. I knew him back in the day when the Ologosphere was going on. Had no idea he was as bright and brilliant uh, as he is. And I noticed he's growing his hair a little longer in his avatar. Have you ever thought about growing your hair a little longer, Donovan? Is that something you might do? Um, I have dabbled with the idea a smidge. I, uh, I thought about maybe trying out a little bit of a flow during mm-hmm. my, my COVID years. Right. But, uh, I realized very quickly that it wasn't for me okay. and that I looked ridiculous. So, uh, ever since then, uh, no. <laughs> you know, the three of us, I'm the old guy here and I have the longest hair. It's true. I have longer hair than either of you two. No response. 
No, no, I got, I got nothing. I've no, just... it's true. I mean, that is a fact. I look pretty good with flow, though. I've had flow before. I, uh, I pull it off well. I get the wings going on the sides there. You know, it, uh, it doesn't look too bad. I don't talk style a lot because uh, obviously, you know, I've got that part down. Uh, but I'm disappointed. You don't wear your glasses anymore. Yeah, uh, you know what? I have them here. Maybe I'll go throw them on. You know what it was? It honestly, they made their fake glasses, as is oh. well reported. It made my vision worse. I came to realize, <laughs> so they kind of hurt my eyes and stuff. But I did look good. Maybe uh, I'll go get them. And I'll is it bring just them back. glass? So there's no chance that it's actually hurting your. They're eyes? like they're blue light glasses. Okay, is that like? I don't know what that means. I don't blue know if that's hair even glasses real. Or? I think it's like for for low light reading or something. I don't know. It's, I don't read much, so they're not for me. But maybe I'll go break them out and try them back on. Because yeah, they were stuff. I, I got. Go ahead. I don't want to coerce you. I don't want to make you do something you don't want to do. I just, I liked you with the glasses. To me, it was like, I, I knew they're fake. And I thought, <laughs> that's so cool. You know, that I know somebody who wears, I know other people who wear fake I got glasses. a lot of compliments on them. People yeah. said it tied. I always thought it took away from my forehead a little bit, slimmed out What's my face. What's wrong with your forehead? Uh, just a little too big. A little, a touch too big. Okay. Well, I've, <laughs> I've got the biggest head in the room. So, yeah, you, not from ego, just no. because it is. I mean, this thing weighs 1,100 pounds. The neck muscles I have, honest to God. The cranium you got up there. Wow, yeah, and Woo. there's nothing in it. You can hear the wind blow. <laughs> All right, uh, Todd Uremchuk from Daily Faceoff on the way. Low down with Low Tide on Sports 1440. You adore your Audi, value your Volkswagen. Sports 1440 and the lowdown for Wolf GMC Buick. Check them out at wolfgmcbuick.com. Joined now by Tyler Uremchuk from Daily Faceoff. Uh, where are, I know that you're on a Learjet somewhere tonight, or maybe you're home until Monday. How you doing, man? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely home until at least Monday. Good to be back at Edmonton. I had a great time out in Arizona. Low Tide, the Mullet Arena was breathtaking. So do you, do you help Kennedy or do you hinder Kennedy? I don't help anyone here. Um, <laughs> I hinder the entire process. I I love that you're honest. That I do love about you. Um, did you get? Did you really have to check your feet and your your shoes like in uh, oversized luggage? No, but I do demand that whoever's in the aisle seats has to give me the aisle seat because I don't really fit anywhere else. Yeah, I believe that is probably true. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, uh, do you like the up or down on the lines? Fogel on the top line with McDavid and Hyman, Nuge with Drysaddle and Kane, and McLeod between. Two slower gents, uh, Jan, Mark, and Perry. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, the only the only change I would have probably made is swapping Holloway and Jan, Mark. Mm-hmm. And I mean, granted, that's creating a fourth line that can you know not skate all that well. But I like giving Holloway a chance with some legitimate skill in McLeod and Perry. And I don't love Jan, Mark as a fit on that line. But I do what I do really like is keeping Fogel up with McDavid and Hyman. He had a really good game. I think you got to reward that. So I see no problem keeping Fogel up there. And, hey, who knows? Maybe if he has a good couple of weeks here, it kind of changes how you look at this lineup ahead of the deadline. That's exactly what my next question was. If he plays well there, does it does it change the, the deadline scenario for Ken Holland? Maybe he does go get that right-handed defenseman. Yeah, like the way I'm kind of looking at this deadline is, and, you know, the Oilers asset pool and also their cap space because they are still tight against the cap. I think they can make an A move, a B move, and a C move, right? And maybe if Fogel plays really well up there and this top six hums and Corey Perry and Ryan McLeod are a productive duo in the bottom six, like maybe you all of a sudden don't feel the need to make forward your A move. Maybe that suddenly does shift back to the blue line and your B and C moves are adding to third and fourth line forward. So you round out the depth, 
and you fill a hole on the blue line. I really do think that there is still a lot left to be decided with this lineup in the next couple of weeks and how Fogel performs next to 97 absolutely will have an impact on that. So I, I'm starting to warm up to the idea of maybe Tanev is your big move and not Gensel. Interesting. Um, Bechnevich is out there, and there's a rumor that it's two first-rounders plus. Is it worth it for the Oilers to go after Bechnevich? They can't afford it is the problem. Like When you're talking about the rental market, it's pretty easy to go to a team like Pittsburgh and say, hey, you're going to keep half, and we're going to give a fourth-rounder to whoever, and they're going to keep half, and then we're going to get this guy. But you can't really do that as easily when there's a year left on the guy's deal. I don't think St. Louis is going to want to keep 50% of that contract for another year unless you're paying out the nose and they already want you to pay out the nose for the player to begin with. So I just don't see it as being a realistic option for the Oilers because of how high Buchnevich's cap it is. He would be an awesome fit. I think he is a tremendously underrated player in the NHL, but I just don't see it happening. Tyler, you're Chuck, our guest from Daily Faceoff on Sports 1440 and the Lowdown with Low Tide. Okay, let's say Holland trades for... Uh, defenseman and a forward, and two players have to either get sent down or be traded away. Right now, based on what the roster is, and let's say Fogel ends up being kept and they go get a fourth-line center, who are your two players that you would move either out or down to Bakersfield? Well, down to Bakersfield, I think Yanmark makes the most sense because he's the highest cap hit, right? I'm pretty confident he would go through waivers. I don't think anyone would step up and claim him, and then you save a million bucks against the cap. So that would make a lot of sense. Also, if they have the wiggle room, I wouldn't be surprised if it's just Gagne going down to the farm for a couple of weeks. On the blue line is where it gets interesting, because if you get Tanev or you get Carrier or anyone else who you might view as an upgrade on the right side, then it's Cece going out the door. You need to find a taker for him somewhere, and it'd be interesting if he's just thrown into a deal or if he's moved in a separate deal. If you don't get that significant piece on the right side, then I think you need to look at the left side and swapping Brett Kulak for Philip Broberg in your lineup and moving on from Kulak in order to save some money. The only thing that concerns me there is Kulak's been pretty decent in the last couple of playoffs, and I really don't want to see the Oilers lose a layer of depth. They need to add another defenseman, not lose one right now. So I'm nervous about sacrificing anything from the blue line. You know what? I agree totally with you. I think if you can upgrade CC, then you do it. But if you can't, then, then you know, Kulak is a guy you trade out if you have to. But I'd like to see another way around it because, you know, he's played very well in the last two playoffs too, right? Like, he's, he, his resume is pretty strong postseason. And he skates well. Like, when you have a team like Vegas who's just rolling four fast lines at you time and time again, like, I kind of – and I know Broberg also skates very well. This isn't any sort of a comment on Broberg. This is a comment on needing depth and needing seven or eight defensemen most of the time to get through a playoff series. Like, I know the Oilers have been remarkably healthy on their blue line, but that's just not going to happen every year. They need to be prepared in case they run into a rash of injuries, and moving Brett Kulak just to use that cap space on the forward group doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Do you think – Somebody asked me this, and I thought, I'll ask you, so I've saved it. I got, somebody asked me on Monday, is this the closest they've been to Stanley? Or do you think a year ago or two years ago they were closer than they are now? Man, that's a really good question. I think, well, th- the problem is right now, like their lineup is more or less the same as it was last year when they were going on their run. Like 
Nick Bukestad is obviously gone, but aside from that, it's largely the same team. So, I mean, you have Stuart Skinner without a uh, you know, real strong backup option, even though I love Picker. That's the same as a year ago. Yeah, I, I would say this lineup is the closest they are. Actually, no, I'll say right now, maybe not, but after the deadline, they'll be the best team they've had in the Connor McDavid era because I do anticipate one or two decent acquisitions. Okay, and this is the question I thought of after I got asked that question, and I want your answer, even if you have to take some a minute to think about it. Are you more confident in the goaltending tandem now than you were in Mike Smith and our friend Koskinen? Wow. Am I more? Oh, man. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I I really do think, like, I mean, they when Mike Smith and Stuart Skinner each fall apart, boy, is it ever ugly. But it's in totally different ways. Like, Stuart Skinner will just let in a couple of wrist shots from the outside that you're like, how how does that get past him? He's usually so sound and whatever. When Mike Smith falls apart, he's flailing around, (laughs) flipping his pads, turning pucks over behind the net like it's an eight-car pileup. When Stuart Skinner lets one in, it leaves you just being like, how how did that one get through? So I I think in a way they're similar because at their high end, they're so damn good. And at their low end, it's just like, what are we doing here? In terms of the backup, uh, Koskinen, I I was maybe a hair more confident in, but we're splitting hairs at that point. So I'll say it's on par, the duo they have. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I... I didn't really – I thought of the question, and then I thought, I'm not answering this. I'll give it to your M. Chuck. Uh, the, the, the deadline – I've never been – like, I don't like to careen. I sort of decide on something, and I say, this is what they need, and I stick with that. But I'll tell you, Todd, I've never seen a year like this where, where even now I'm like, okay, the goaltending's fine, but a flurry became available. How, how fluid do you think Ken Holland's going to be here if somebody – if somebody in goal just makes themselves available suddenly, do you think that sort of that die is cast, that it's settled law now that they're going in with Skinner and Pickard? You know, we were, I was joking about this with some people down in Arizona, and, and there's a lot of like, well, who can you possibly trust in the playoffs? And it's kind of like, you know, Jack Campbell has really good playoff numbers in his career. I know we don't really <laughs> want to think about that, but really damn good for you in every relief appearance last year and with Toronto the year before that he was really damn good for them and he outdueled Vasilevsky so maybe it's not like the most terrible thing in the world but I sound real dirty saying that so I don't know like let's look at it this way let's say P- Kyle Dubas calls you up from Pittsburgh hour until the deadline and he says hey I'm just looking to get what I can give me your fourth next year and uh, I'll give you Nedeljkovic but then Washington calls and says hey We'll give you uh, Joel Edmondson at 50% retained for that, for a fourth round pick. Like, well, he's dirt cheap. You need defensive depth. What's more useful for the Oilers? Getting a second slash third goalie for that fourth round pick or adding a layer of depth on the blue line and improving who your seventh defenseman is? Not that I'm a big Joel Edmondson guy. He's not the player he was even two years ago. But what's the better use of your fourth round pick? Yeah. Getting someone who's going to be a black ace? or getting someone who you're probably going to need three or four times in the first couple rounds of the playoffs, if we're being honest. Again, injuries happen to blue lines all the time in the playoffs. So, I don't know, there's just still that part of me that goes, get more depth, get a better fourth-line center, upgrade the 7D spot, do things like that, because, I mean, come on, 
what are the odds Alex Nedeljkovic catches fire for you? Because you need him desperately in the final three games of the playoff series and compare those odds to Pickard and Campbell. I just, goalies are weird, man. What, what if, what if, what if injury and poor play dictates that Jack Campbell starts game seven of the Stanley Cup final against Toronto? Oh, see, but that's the beauty of it. You know he'd have a shutout because Leafs fans are more cursed than us. That would be beautiful. You're probably right. I, I I am just absolutely on to the idea of the Leafs and the Oilers meeting in the final. It has to happen. It just has to. Did you see what, what t- Toronto did to Vegas last night? I mean, Aiden Hill is a Tier 1, A1 goalie every time he plays against the Oilers, and then he just seems to only have stinkers against other teams. But Toronto, that Morgan Riley thing seemed to galvanize them. Yeah, it did. They were And, and Willie, Willie Laguson is out there playing, man. I love this stuff. And while they're at it, why not Martin Marinson? They need D-men. Damn right. Mark Pouliot's still playing. All right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too, Ted. All right. There you go. Todd Ramchuk from Daily Faceoff. Does really good work over there. Everybody who ever works on the low down with low tide ends up becoming rich and famous. It's just a matter of time. Ooh, I like the sound of that. Just You just wait, man. You mm. just wait your turn. Things are trending up, eh? And you got the glasses going now. I'll be able to get a nicer pair, surely. If they ever do like a styly, like Edmonton media style thing, yeah. I'm going to put your name in. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I think it deserves to be there. You're wearing a, like a peach shirt right now? Yeah, it's like beige, tan, peachish yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I might show up there and be completely out of place, but I'll, I'll rock it. You have all the colors. I've got like gray, oh, yeah. blue. I have one white shirt and then a bunch of green. Yeah. But you have all the colors. I'm a fashion guy. I like to I like to look respectable. Yeah. But I can also like I, I don't mind toning it down. Hoodie but and sweats. A little bit grudge. Yeah. How are we doing with our friend over here? Does he have a look at all or is he just a guy? Donovan's his drip's pretty good. No. Like it's casual, but it's not bad. Like no. he rocks it for sure. So it fits his personality very well. So it's not like, you know, the consumer's distributing low end stuff. He's talking, you know, quality there. I'm if you shook to, him down, you'd probably take the hoodie. I can't get a read on what Brandy's wearing. No Balenciaga, I'm going to guess. But it's still he's rocking it nonetheless. No, I think I saw Zeller's in there. Was, was, no. <laughs> Look at me like don't, don't, don't insult him like that. <laughs> don't insult me with Zeller's. <laughs> What's wrong with Zeller's? It existed. <laughs> that, Once? that is the motto they need to go by. <laughs> Zeller's, we existed. Uh, is it Zellers that has a Twitter account or not them, but somebody tweets as Zellers? Is it Zellers online or is it one of the other ones? That sounds like something that would catch steam. I'm not sure if it is that, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. All I can think of right now is the uh, the Chili's Twitter account. Oh, yeah. Where they're tweeting, like, at Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. And... Do, do you know at our house we have still have a Zeddy? Do you remember Zeddy? No. The little, little stuffed toy? Ooh. Yeah. That's a throwback. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, the whole show, guys, is a throwback. Now, coming up, we're going to sell this puppy. We've got music for it, too, right? Like, we actually have a song? Um, Precious Declarations is yeah. the song, yeah. And Declinations that. is on the way. And it would be Donovan Nations, but Declan's here. So it's Declinations, but Donovan's taking part in the... Declinations featuring Donovan. Right. And, uh, but that 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 leaves an implication that I'm not there. That's right? true too. It can't be that. It could be. Yeah. De- here's what it should be. It should be declinations featuring Declan with Declan and Donovan. <laughs> I like. Yeah. Sure. <laughs>
He's the only person to win an arm wrestling contest with the Philly Fanatic. The Lowdown with Low Tide, now on Sports 1440. Presented by Wolf GMC Buick. We're making it easy. WolfGMCBuick.com It's The Lowdown. like that song for Wolf GMC Buick. Check them out at WolfGMCBuick.com Say hi to Doug and Mary. It's time now for Declinations with Declan, featuring Declan and Donovan. I like that. I, because it it is... <laughs> It is absolutely mentioning Donovan. Just a lot of Declans in there beforehand. As it should be. So This t- was my first ever segment on the show. This it was, was. Yeah, before the show even got going, we met and we said, we're going to give me this one. And you know why I did that? Because I think that, and I really believe this, because if you, if you treat somebody like they're the help, then that's what you get as help. Yeah. And if you say to somebody... You have, I hate the phrase skin in the game, mm-hmm. but it, it, this reflects you too, then people respond more. Although at that point, I would have been fine to be no, treated no, but, like the help. I would have just you, been happy to be there. You have a brain. People need to know that. There's a little up there, not much, no, but I got a little no, going you've for got a, You're a very bright man, and you need to, to like, because all this is a microphone. You I just need had to know get used that. to it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. And now look at you. You're flying. Otherwise, I'll go stir crazy like that guy in pie. And I'll just Every day in the big boardroom in this building, they're like, you know, how much longer are we going to go with the old guy? The young guy is just running circles around him. So anyway, we are talking about top five underachievers, right, in the National Hockey League. Top five underachieving players in the NHL this season. Okay. Yes. So Greg Polis is not in this one because he doesn't play anymore. Correct. You're okay. catching on quickly. All right. We got you something know, good here. No, no flies on me. All right. Number five. Number five. Now, I have two guys on here who are a little, maybe not as much underachievers as they are, ooh, that guy's not what we thought they were going to be. But my number five is Johnny Gaudreau. Okay. Johnny Gaudreau is a guy who's got a $9.75 million cap hit. He's a guy who has eight goals this season. He's dash 19. And again, maybe he's never going to be the 115-point player we saw in Calgary or the 99-point player we saw him have that one season. But he was obviously brought into Columbus on a long-term deal with a lot of money expected to be a face of the franchise. Has not lived up to it. Eight goals so far this season in 55 games. Only 40 points. He's my number five. Your number five. My number five. This is a very, very off-the-board and... It's not, I'm just going to say, Jonathan Drouin. I feel really bad for putting him on here because he did have some off-the-ice struggles. But coming out of the draft, the guy was supposed to be dynamic. And he played with Nathan McKinnon. So he went to the Colorado Avalanche this summer on a very, very nice deal. But I honestly, I was expecting huge things from Jonathan Drouin because he, he seemed to get his off-the-ice struggles in the right in the right spot. And I thought he was going to have a huge year. It's not a disappointing year. He still had an okay year. I just think he's underachieved relative to what I expected him to do. I thought he would be really, really good. That's very fair. You weren't. That, that's that's okay to be critical, and it's not like he's shooting lights out. He's playing well, but not so well. Number four. Number four. I have Ilya Sorokin. Ilya Sorokin, 17, 12, and 11 this season, a 3.14 GAA and a 9.10 save percentage. His GAA, 38th in the league. His save percentage, barely top 20. This is a guy who I think we came into the season thinking was a top goaltender, if not the top goaltender by a wide margin in the NHL, a guy who can steal you games, and I do not think he's lived up to that so far this season in New York. Now, obviously, the defense in front of him plays a part, but I look at the numbers. They don't impress me. For what we thought he was, he's my number four. Yeah, there's a few few goalies like that this year and Donovan 
I honestly didn't think to go goalie, but that's a good one. Uh, I have Capo Caco. And I know you love this player, Al, but after 40 points last year, I came into the year thinking, man, this guy's going to have a great year. And it just hasn't been that. He's only got 11 points on the season. And I, I feel like it's just a matter of time before the Rangers give up on this guy. And they shouldn't, but they will. He's a, The Rangers are... They got a lot of really good, talented players there, and they're getting lost a little bit. This happens with teams. But you're right. He has been disappointing. Number three. Number three, Pierre-Luc Dubois. Big contract, a lot of money, high AAV, 26 points, 13 goals, 13 apples in 55 games this year. Dash 16. Incredibly underwhelming, incredibly underachieving. Not a great guy in the locker room from what we may have heard and some comments by Drew Doughty, things like that. He's my number three. Okay, your number three, Donovan. My number three, I'm continuing the off-the-board answers here. Justin Hall of the Detroit Whoa. Red Wings. Wow. Three-year deal in the offseason, over $3 million a year for Detroit. And I'll be honest, I didn't expect him to live up to it, but I expected him to at least play. He's a seventh defenseman. They're not playing him. The guy got $3 million for three years and just doesn't play. That, that That's a... <clears throat> That's a very astute observation. I think people would overlook it because it's really hard to uh, identify good and bad years for that player type, but well done. I agree with that. Number two. Number two. I have Tage Thompson at my number two. And I'm looking back through my list, and I think maybe that's a little too high in comparison to the other players. He's got 33 points this year, 16 goals, 17 apples. He's a dash 13. He's only getting, he only has a cap hit of 7.1, but this is a guy who we saw score 47 goals last year. This was a guy who was thought of to be in the rocket race. This was a guy who was thought of to be a 50 goal scorer moving forward. Potentially. I've been very underwhelmed by Tage Thompson. And maybe I'm realizing now that's just because I had such high hopes for him, but 33 points in 46 games, only 16 goals for a guy who's supposed to be a pure goal scorer. Not good enough for me. He's my number two. Okay, you're number two. Tanner Janot. The guy was traded for basically an entire draft class, minus a sixth and a seventh. Incredible incredible story, really. One of the best fleecings of all time. Because since going to Tampa Bay, this guy has been, well, nothing short of of not good at all, and just bad. Uh, All he's done this season is be tied for 428th in league scoring. He's been an absolutely tragic acquisition. <laughs> That's a great word. A tragic acquisition. Well, well done. Okay, number one. Number one, amplified by this market, I have Jack Campbell as my biggest underachiever this season. Obviously only played five games this year, 4.5 GAA, 8.73 save percentage. Uh, but the biggest thing is where he's playing right now, right? He is not in the National Hockey League. This is fair. He sa- it, yeah, it really he, has he been sa- a huge disappointment. Spent a long stretch yeah. not playing very well in the American League either. Was thought to be, if not a 1A, 1B with Skinner, just the one. Obviously was not that. Five games and he was sent down to the farm. He's my number one underachiever this season. And and where would this team be without Stuart Skinner? Your number one, Donovan. That's an unbelievable one. I, I loved that number one. But uh, for me, my number one is a man with a huge contract in Calgary. It's Jonathan Huberto. I love the player. I loved him so much in Florida. I thought coming into this year, new head coach, no more Daryl Sutter. It's going to fix him. What it's done is nothing at all. He has just been absolutely destroyed by this team, their system. He's tied for 128th in scoring 
This from a player who had 115 points in Florida. Yeah. It's truly a travesty to, to watch Jonathan Huberto, the, the fall from I, grace. I originally had Jonathan Huberto on my list, but I took him off. Because, because he's playing better. No, I took him off because I started to think that 115-point season he also had was truly an anomaly, and yeah. maybe he just wasn't that player. I know he had some good years before that, points per 90-point season, point-per-game season. Like, I know he was doing fine before that, but last year in Calgary when he only had the 50, 55 points and 15 goals mixed with this season, I, I totally understand him being there. I think he's a great number one. His co- terrible contract. But based on what we've seen, what I think we know he is now, I was happy to leave him off. He, the problem that he had with that big season, Barkov was his center, right? Yeah. No, no, he wasn't. Was it was center? Sam it, Bennett. No, it was no, Barkov. it was Barkov. It was Barkov. It was Sam Bennett. No, I am. We can look this. up. I am ninety nine percent sure it was well, Sam Bennett because he played with Sam Bennett and Duclair. I was, I was, a, I loved Jonathan Huberto. I watched him all the time. I'm sure it was. I, I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong. Now, now I'm thinking I am wrong because I thought it was Barkov. Twenty one, no twenty two. Let's go have a look at this. Jonathan, because that would be huge if he was, did it, because then he would have been far more yeah. solo than we thought Well, because it would have been B- B- Barkov. For Haggy. It was yeah. Barkov for Haggy, and it was Bennett and Huberto. Mm. I watched Florida all the time. Was it 21-22? Uh, well, He's 115-point season? season. It was 21-22, yeah. Okay, so we're looking for five-on-five teammates that year, 21-22. This is all via natural statric, and thank God for natural statric. Uh, and I'll give you the numbers. If he didn't play with Barkov, I'm going to be shocked. Well, I know that's been written a thousand times, so I he, I thought it was no, true. He, he didn't. I I'm very certain because I okay. Him a we lot, went, we went from screaming to 99 <laughs> to very certain. We're trending down. Well, All right, this like, is good. Well, am, we're going to find out. I am so. still I am still the the intern here. So do you, I, do you know that if this turns out against you, we will probably use this more than we use Pulp Fiction. You could. But guess what? Twenty one, twenty two. Is that the year? Yep. He played most often with Sam Bennett. Wow. Six hundred and six minutes. Duclair four thirty six. And he played just so we're clear. He played two hundred and four minutes with Barkov. Cross he did score twelve points, but he played two hundred and four minutes with Barkov. I was going to say cross references points with the minutes played. Okay, so now we're going to go to point rates because it's thirty one points and six hundred minutes with Bennett. And 12 points in 204 minutes with uh, Barkov. We just have to ask Natural Statric to give it to us one more mm-hmm. time. And do we have time, right? This is pretty cool. Yeah, good, good memory by you, young man. Yeah, no, I... I it's not easy to stand up to two curmudgeons like us and, and have the courage of your convictions. Well done. And that's, Listen, when you're right, you're right. you got to stand no, on it. You're damn right. I, I thought I was right, and you that's... obviously misspent your youth, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, Sam Bennett three point oh seven points per sixty by Huberdeau when playing with Bennett, and three point five two with Barkov. So he played well with Barkov, but he played well, one third of the time, two hundred and four minutes compared to six hundred and six. What was the number with Bennett? Three point five two with Barkov. Three oh seven with Bennett. Three oh seven. But he only had twelve points yeah, with Barkov, yeah. so. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, you're right. That that narrative, that narrative is not 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 right. That he was he was well, a product what, of Barkov. I I like I read that a lot. Yeah, over we, the last few years. Yeah, no, because I watched them all the time. I loved watching Jonathan Huberto. He's one now, of my favorite players to watch. Do oh, we do we give ben, Huberto the credit, or maybe we're just underrating Bennett because he's played well? I think it was Huberto. Ah. I think it was the system in Florida was fully fully capable of helping Jonathan Huberto be the player that he can be. Well, why doesn't Florida? Calgary do that? 
because I honestly, I just think they're stubborn and they have so many other players that aren't that creative as Jonathan Huberto that they kind of took away his his uh, his east-west movement and just made him and tried to make him a north-south player, mm-hmm. which I feel like really killed him. Interesting. That's an interesting take. So we have to, we only have now, when we want to pick on him, we only have the clergy, Swifties, Pulp Fiction. There was Jays. something else, I think. Jays, the mad at the Jays. There was someone else he went at pretty well. Oh, the the uh, the American South. I think he That's went after right. a little he bit. He did. Yeah. He went after the American South as well. So, do you want it? Maybe Italy next week. How? Where are you going to go? South. Mm. You know, South America, um, Chile. I don't. I'm just going to throw out Uzbekistan. I I think the <laughs> Uzbekistan is just it's, it's if, a catastrophe right now. Of the three of us, if 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 we. The three of us were given, you know, the globes they have, the yep. big ground globes. We were given two minutes to find Guam. I would find it in seconds. I would find it in decades. Why would you find it in seconds? I used to be able to name every single country on earth. Stop it. 100%. I swear. Stop I swear it. on my life. I used could to be you able to identify, you know, where Guam is? Oh, yeah. I could find it on a map. Where's Guam? Guam, Guam is. Um, Guam is okay. So I'm trying to like I'm trying to draw. That's okay. I'll I'm we'll take your time. We got like a minute. Yeah. So Guam is like it's in Oceania in the Southern Pacific God. by like Polynesia, Micronesia, Palau, all you that. You guys stuff. are too smart for yeah. me. Identifying line mates from four years ago and being able to name where Guam is. Yeah, I think it's south of Kiribati. I know it's south of here. <laughs> south of totally here, totally yeah. south of here. All right, and Kiribati is actually pronounced Kiribati for anyone who's wondering. Fun fact. What the hell? Yeah. Well, I don't know what I'm gonna. I I yeah. have no response to this. That's it's gone south. But listen, Jonathan Huberto, number one underachiever this Yukon year. Yukon territory on a map. Okay, well, who can? Thanks so much for tuning in to this lesson in geography and history. Uh, Jason Greger on the way. Stay tuned for that. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the two Oiler games, and we'll be back to talk to you on Monday. Time now for an update. This is a Sports 1440 update.